0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Southern Peanut Growers, committed to making sustainable more attainable for chefs and cooking enthusiasts worldwide.
2: This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhattan, New York. 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly.
3: This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Lisa Haushofer. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our summer 2022 issue, now available online, is all about the theme of borders and boundaries. And it features articles on migrant experiences, food imaginaries and practices of provisioning through food rearing and preservation. Join us over the next couple of weeks as we talk with authors and subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. Our guest this week is Noah Fikri. Noah is a PhD student in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Toronto, and she also holds an MA and a BA in anthropology from the American University in Cairo. She's interested in food and the relationship between humans and animals in Egypt. Noah, thank you so much for joining us
4: and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lisa. I'm very humbled and honored to be here.
3: So I have to say your piece was one of my favorites in this new issue. It's titled Today's Children, Tomorrow's Meals, Rooftops as Spaces of Nurturance in Contemporary Egypt. And it's just a fascinating exploration of rooftops and the animals that are kept on them in Cairo and Alexandria. And it also tells a bigger story about gendered food labor and about broader understandings of taste and food in Egypt. But before we dive into the article, before we get into the meat of it, could you maybe just tell us a little bit more about yourself and your training? How did you come to study food and animals and humans in Egypt and what led you to rooftops?
4: Yes, sure. This is all very exciting. So as you mentioned, I am basically trained as an anthropologist uh, since my undergraduate degree. So I have a BA and an MA in Sociocultural Anthropology and I'm also doing now, I'm in my second year of the PhD program also in Sociocultural Anthropology and I'm now doing also a collaborative specialization in food studies uh, with Culinaria, Culinary Research Center. And I've always been interested in maybe human-animal relations. So I remember in, um, right after my graduation from my undergraduate degree, uh, one of my mentors just recommended a few texts that were then still emerging on multi-species ethnography, on human-animal relations. And I was very drawn into this realm because I thought that, yes, animals and non-humans, both visible and invisible, play a major role in the social world. And it is a challenge to kind of research that and include them in our ethnographic adventures. And since then, I've just been thinking, okay, how do I integrate non-humans in our research in anthropology and beyond? And for me, food was a very um, important answer because just thinking pragmatically, where do animals exist in Egypt, in cities or otherwise? For me, there were many answers, but one of them were basically people rearing animals inside their homes or on the rooftops for food sustenance. And this also like stretches a long way back because my maternal grandparents also used to rear animals and they used to live in Cairo as well. So I have photographs of myself just walking on rooftops with animals. But oh, I've wow. never thought this could be. <laughs> yes, but I never thought this could be an actually an, an ethnographic experience. So I tried just delving into rooftops and how do people... Uh, rare animals on rooftops at the moment Uh, why are they important what can they tell us about the social world so this is how it came about
3: that's great Um, maybe let's just stay there let's talk a little bit about these rooftops can you tell us a little bit about the uh, farms on these rooftops the rooftops themselves who has animals on them for what purpose and also maybe how did those rooftops or studying those rooftops challenge your idea of what a rooftop is and is for um and maybe also a little bit on the larger context in which these rooftops for animal rearing are kept in egypt
4: yes absolutely this is a a wonderful kind of question okay so rooftops are usually located on top of roof earth four or five floor family homes. So these are extended family homes and they're usually located in working or lower middle class neighborhoods in the cities such as Cairo and Alexandria but also beyond. And the larger context here is that most families from this class background usually complain of the lack of trusted and affordable meat proteins, with the only available options either being too expensive or too suspiciously cheap and frozen, so they wouldn't trust buying them and feeding them to the family. Mm. So what they do is basically they resort to rearing their own food, meaning rearing their own animals, at home, and this is usually located on rooftops again. Mm -hmm. And. I think how it challenges my imagination of rooftops is that when I began as like a very excited field worker, ethnographer, I had this romanticized image of a rooftop looking, overlooking the city, providing a very romantic space uh, of tranquility, etc. But this was very different from what I actually witnessed in the field. So, Yes, from the rooftop, you can see a very romantic view of Cairo, of an interlocking trees and flowers and all of that. But it's also a very literally and metaphorically muddied ground. So the ground is wet, it's full of birds' feces, birds' poop, uh, it's full of mud, it's full of clutter. So you kind of have to manage both dimensions in a way. Yes, the city looks amazing, but rooftops are also about a very fundamental reality of um, Lack of proteins, again, food provisioning and gendered care as well. So uh, rooftops basically look like apartments. They are an apartment, but without a ceiling. So you have separate rooms. And in each room, you have one species or more of animals. And they are kept in these rooms, but they are allowed to share space or to roam around during the day. Um, Yeah, this is how they look, I think.
3: That's amazing. Yeah, I I think they also, you also challenged my idea of what a rooftop is and what it looks like. Um, And I imagine that, you know, obviously um, having been to these rooftops before, that you did um, have, you know, certain access, but then also you describe some of the challenges you faced in trying to access these rooftops. And also you talk about the legal situation regarding rooftop animal rearing that made your research somewhat difficult at times and can you tell us a little bit more about that and about the challenges in general that you encountered when you started uh, researching these rooftops?
4: Yes, definitely. So the state has never been supportive of rooftop rearing in the city at all and since the avian flu crisis which took place in 2007 in Egypt, families have been witnessing uh, multiple state crackdowns on the rooftops, basically confiscating the birds or just ordering them not to rear any animals anymore. So uh, there was even a a moment in which there was um, a law has been drafted to actually ban uh, rooftop rearing of all kinds in the city, but luckily it never got implemented. So uh, this given state of affairs resulted in kind of a a culture of secrecy around rooftop rearing. So they have to be kept kind of private. Mm -hmm. So to respect and to take seriously this state of affairs, I had to grapple with the limitation or the challenge of, for example, not taking so many pictures on rooftops because I wanted to respect the privacy of this practice. And yes, just maintaining a healthy boundary between being there and also keeping the privacy of my interlocutors. And the other thing is also that um, because rooftops are again an asset of food for these families, they are usually also recording the animals um, as as vulnerable to the evil eye. So taking pictures and exposing these pictures to the public might also cause uh, illness or death to these animals. So this was again another factor that or a challenge that uh, I had to work through because again I couldn't take so many pictures even though I really wanted to. and one last challenge is basically a methodological challenge, which I mentioned in the beginning. How do we conduct ethnographic research with animals? Yeah. So in the beginning, I was very excited. I just wanted to speak to the chickens and to just approach them and observe them and touch them and all of that. And then I think with time, I came to realize that this is not how it works. So animals are essentially in ethnographic research, I think, and they can be incorporated either by just letting them be and trying to observe them from a distance or befriending them on the limitations of our species differences, or just spending time with people who know how to communicate with animals in different languages and different ways, and learning from these ways of being with animals.
3: That's fascinating. And I imagine that, you know, you also had to, like with every ethnographic research, you also had to obviously gain the trust of the people rearing these animals. And um, and at the same time, you know, the you write so beautifully about how um, the animals are also part of you know, the families that are um, that are rearing the animals. Um, so one of the central insights of your piece is essentially um, an insight on on kinship, and that these rooftops sort of function as extensions, not only spatial exgen- extensions of kitchens and the household, but also extensions of the family can you tell us a bit more about that how do rooftop animals sort of trouble you know boundaries of inside and outside the house but also species boundaries between human and non-human animals um, kinship boundaries what are the bonds of of kinships that develop there and what are the religious ties binding together animals and humans in this context
4: Yes, yes, these are all wonderful questions. Yes. Okay, so let me begin with kinship. So I think my relationship with, with kinship as a concept is very complicated, because kinship continues to be one of these gatekeeping concepts defining work on the Middle East and on Egypt. And I, for me, this is a challenge because kinship is still very relevant in understanding the region. But what I try to do in my work is basically stretch kinship beyond its species lines yeah. by exploring precisely what you mentioned is interspecies kinship, for example. So how do humans and animals make bonds that look or look like or resemble kinship in a way while also being different? So... On the first level what i noticed or observed during my fieldwork is that people refer to these rooftop animals as their children. So the women rearing these animals refer to these rooftop animals as their children. So initially i thought okay this is a fun metaphor but it's not a metaphor it's it's actually a reality because how they how they relate to the animals is that they they kind of expect them to be their children. So the other word that I'm also trying to work through now is terbeya. and terbeya in Arabic uh, refers to the primarily refers to the parent-child relationship. So how a parent would nurture but also discipline a child. Mm-hmm. So I try to explore how does terbea work when it is in, in an interspecies context. So what does it mean to invoke terbeya when you're referring to rooftop rearing? And what I'm trying to argue is that this is about reciprocity or expecting a certain reciprocity in this relationship between the humans and the rooftop animals. And this reciprocity takes the form of the animals uh, reciprocating the care of the humans through offering themselves or their bodies or their flesh as food to the family. Mm -hmm. so yes kinship exists and yes kinship is important but kinship is also kind of a pressure or a bond of obligation in a sense that can be extended beyond species lines Um, and then the other thing the other thing that you mentioned as well is the religious tie and i think this is very important so on one primary level in islam in specific we are kind of, as humans, we're expected to care for the animals. And if we don't care for the animals, we are faced with godly punishment. Mm -hmm. But on another level, I also argue that religion functions as a third party to ensure that the animals or that the rooftop relations follow a a strict script, which is basically feed, nurture, reciprocate, slaughter, and eat. So in a sense, religion serves as a reminder that rooftop animals, after all, are meant to be eaten. So in this sense, uh, 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 for anyone to slaughter an animal, they had to be granted what in Arabic is called al izn which translates into the permission. So you have to be permitted to slaughter an animal. And usually this permission is uh, granted by a male elder member of the family. It's usually a father or an older brother. And what this brother or father have to make sure is that the person being granted the izn actually is strong enough to be able to tolerate the sight of blood, but also to follow the Islamic rules of slaughtering an animal, which ensure that it it is done mercifully and rapidly. So um, I think this is kind of the religious um, aspect of these uh, kinship or what looks like kinship bonds. I think, yeah. And then finally, yes, on the question of the boundaries of home as well. So, one of the main uh, arguments that I tried to make in the article is that because meals begin on rooftops, Rooftops actually help us extend the boundaries of the kitchen and the home beyond the walls of the apartment or the the house, so to speak. So the kitchen actually also begins or extends to the rooftop as spaces of nurturance, but also spaces of slaughtering and preparing food.
3: Yes, exactly. And you show so beautifully that um, women in particular pay, play um, an important role Um, obviously in in the space of the kitchen but then also in these extended spaces on the rooftops the women are the ones that often rear the animals and you argue that women gain intimate knowledge of food by knowing what you call the culinary biographies of their animals so can you tell us a little bit about that what are culinary biographies And what is this kind of gendered care work that women perform in this context with culinary biographies?
4: Yes, sure. This is also one of my favorite parts. So um, one of the things that I learned from Culinary Research Center, but also from different classes that I took in food studies, is that we need to understand how people describe the food they eat and the meanings that they give to what they eat. So when I observed how my interlocutors described the taste of rooftop animals, I noticed that they all refer to the animals as clean and to the taste as clean. And after many meals and chats during fieldwork, I realized that clean is actually referring to what I call the culinary biography of an animal, which is basically what an animal has eaten before it becomes meat, so to speak. So, this primarily refers to the female labor of preparing and controlling an animal's feed. So, when I ask them to describe my interlocutors, when I ask them to describe cleanliness more, or like how an animal would taste clean, they would do so through basically contrasting this cleanliness with another taste, undesired taste in Arabic called Zafara and the fara is interesting because it can be translated to rancidity but it's much more so in arabic it is both a taste and a smell and it is used to describe uh, only meat and dairy products for example so i ask my interlocutors okay what do you mean by zafara where does it exist or how does it not exist when it comes to rooftop family or rooftop playing so they would usually mention um, commercial forms, for example. So one of my interlocutors, Nahid, would tell me how in commercial forms, what happens is that animals are fed uh, a protein-rich concentrate of basically uh, leftovers of butchers and fish and all of that, and they are all powdered and burnt and then given as fish meal or as a protein-rich concentrate to the animals, which helps them swell up quickly and reproduce more quickly and efficiently. But this... Accelerated mode of, of production and mode of food production basically results in a compromised taste, which is the and which arguably does n- does not exist or never exists with rooftop animals, because they are again fed with care and nurtured with food that you know and that you control, and this is what I think I mean by culinary biographies.
3: That's great. It's so fascinating, and I'm we're talking more about this uh, but we're going to take a short break now and we'll be back in just a
1: moment this episode is proudly supported by southern peanut growers who are spreading the word about peanut sustainability as the planet's resources are strained to meet the nutritional needs of its populations many responsible chefs are doing their part by sourcing local and sustainably raised food Many are surprised to learn that peanuts are one of the most sustainable plant-based proteins available. Southern Peanut Growers created the campaign, Making Sustainable More Attainable, in partnership with award-winning chef Steven Satterfield. Together they're bringing the sustainability message to chefs nationwide. Whether it's conserving water, minimizing fertilizers, or achieving zero waste, peanuts are a logical choice for your next menu. Southern peanut growers represent farmers across Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, and Alabama. For more information, visit www.peanutbutterlovers.com.
2: I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as SACRED my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhattan, New York, 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly.
3: And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Lisa Haushofer talking with Noah Fikri about her new article, Today's Children, Tomorrow's Meals, Rooftops as Spaces of Nurturance in Contemporary Egypt, now available in issue 22.2 of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. So Noah, one of... The sections I found most intriguing in your piece talks about animal agency and it's titled Suicidal Turkeys and Dying Sheep. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? What are suicidal turkeys um, and how do they enhance our understanding of animal agency in this context of the rooftops?
4: Yes, this is one of the funniest memories from fieldwork. So whenever turkeys would be brought up for a reason or another during fieldwork, my interlocutors would usually just describe turkeys as having huge egos. And by that they meant that turkeys are very self-confident, but they were also never accept being defeated. So once a turkey is bruised or, or wounded for any reason on the rooftop, they would take their own lives a few days later. And how this actually unfolded is that during one field work day, I was um, with Nahid, so who I mentioned before, is one of my interlocutors, and we were sitting in the living room. And suddenly, Nahid's daughter-in-law, Sahar, arrived. So she came into the living room holding a very huge white piece of flesh and waiting for a response from me. And I could say nothing so she told me do you know what that piece of flesh is and I told her I obviously don't know so she told me this is the tastiest piece of a turkey it's its buttocks and she just left and they laughed and she promised a delicious meal in a few hours Mm -hmm. of course I could not eat uh, the meal at all so I don't even eat turkeys but seeing that huge white piece of flesh didn't make a strong case for me to change my opinion at all (laughs) but um, yeah so Turkeys are also very expensive. So I was a bit surprised that we are having turkeys for lunch on a fieldwork day. So I asked Nehe to tell me, why are we having turkeys today? And she basically narrated the recurrent incident in which she would be going up to the rooftop to just feed the animals one morning or one afternoon. And she would find a bruised turkey. And a few days later, she would find the turkey either dead. Or, or she would find its body lying on the ground beneath the rooftop. So they basically jumped off the rooftop. So what she told me is that in order to prevent this from happening, because a, a suicide or like a turkey who committed suicide would not be halal to eat because it has not been slaughtered according to the Islamic Sharia laws, she, had, she has to intervene. And the intervention is basically to slaughter the animal before the animal commits suicide. Hmm. So this is exactly what happened. She found this turkey bruised on the rooftop. And so on the following day, before the turkey takes its own life, she slaughtered the turkey and we were having it for lunch on that day. So for me, this is about, of course, humans kind of making a decision and intervention to kind of redirect or reorient the animal life back into where it should be, namely human bellies. But it's also really about a certain level of agency that turkeys here enjoy. So in a sense, the Turkey was wounded and it couldn't tolerate uh, being injured. And by taking its own life, it's also the Turkey is telling us that I do not want to be defeated and I want to define my own death, so to speak. And for me, this is a a certain level of agency that we need to think through, I guess.
3: That's really fascinating. And I I guess it's also one of the ways, um, one of the answers to, you know, your initial question, how do you get at animal agency how do you study animal agency and by really paying attention to these stories also have you encountered yes. these stories elsewhere and, or is was this sort of the only example of a suicidal turkey in in that particular context uh,
4: yeah I think, so in other homes as well, I usually get the same or like similar stories of turkeys that we have to rescue through oh. slaughtering before they commit suicide. Yeah. But this was my first time and my only time to kind of come to terms with it as flesh as well.
3: And to and to be faced with the the culinary result of yeah. that. That's amazing. Um, and, exactly. <laughs> and you also talk about... Um, rooftops as spaces where women fulfill certain, you know, very locally specific gendered expectations of caregiving, and you call them bread nurturing. And I love this term. Um, can you maybe explain to our listeners, what do you mean by bread nurturing? What sort of um, what's captured with this? How does it reflect the kind of culinary work that women specifically are expected to perform in this context?
4: Yes, absolutely. So I think I I, I came up with bread nurturing uh, in contrast with, or in contrast to, uh, what is an idealized uh, male responsibility, which is called breadwinning in Middle Eastern societies. And this is again an idealization more than reality, because most or many uh, lower middle and working class families are female headed. But bread nurturing is my attempt to basically push. Um, discussions of food beyond questions of financing and questions of access and affordability. Because bread nurturing is really about focusing on labors of securing or nurturing or rearing food of a particular quality to the household. So it's not uh, strictly a matter of just finding food to put or like to serve the family. But it is about a very gendered responsibility falling upon women to provide food of certain quality and of certain trusted quality to the home. And this w- would encompass basically uh, cooking skills. It would encompass choice of grocers and where we should buy certain items from. But also, again, practices such as home rearing and rooftop rearing, which ensure that women can feed the family as well.
3: Great. So now we have spent quite a lot of time talking about the rooftops and we've been on the rooftops basically with the animals. I wonder if we can just maybe take a moment and, and zoom out a little bit. Um, how do you see these rooftops fit within the broader culinary landscape of Egypt?
4: Yes, thank you so much. I think this is also like, I love how you describe it because, so this piece came out of my MA research And it took three years for me to actually get to understand what the broader context is and how can I incorporate this broader context in my discussion. So I really appreciate you asking and putting this this way. So I think the discussion of food in Egypt is usually predominantly focused on financing food Mm -hmm. or, again, questions of access and affordability. So the, the everyday question would be, how do lower, middle, and working classes in Egypt afford proteins? And for me, this is a good question, but it is insufficient. So it's a good starting point, so to speak. And rooftops, for me, allow us to complicate or nuance this focus on access and affordability. So instead of asking how often do uh, lower middle working class families eat meat, we would ask where does the meat come from? How has the meat been rared? And who was feeding the animals? And what were these animals eating? So my 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 kind of argument here is that rooftop raring, yes, it begins with an economic necessity or an economic constraint, because these families in most cases cannot afford access to trusted proteins. But the ethnographic stories in the article actually reveal an understanding of taste that transcends economic necessity. Mm-hmm. So for example, whenever I would tell my interlocutors that I do not like eating red meat at all, they would tell me, yes, because you buy red meat from supermarkets and you have no idea where the meat comes from or you cannot trace the meat or what it has eaten before it came to be served on your table. So for them, the nurturing your own meat or rearing your own meat is really about a different understanding of taste that goes beyond class dynamics, I think. Um, So no matter how a piece of meat would be expensive, if you don't know how it has been reared or what it has eaten, do not try to convince me that it's good meat, in a way. So um, the other point that I want to say is also that I think rooftop pairing exposes a a contested and a very diverse arena of raring animals for food in Egypt at the moment. Because recently, Egypt, just like other places in the world, has been witnessing the growth of organic small-scale farms. And these are given considerable media attention as offering the alternative to mass-produced meat. And this is interesting, but the problem is that these small-scale organic farms are catering for upper classes only. And they are way unaffordable to most families in Egypt. So what intrigued me here is basically to ask, OK, but why do rooftop rearing never make it to these discussions? why can't we regard rooftop prairie practices as equally an important alternative to mass-produced meat, which has been ongoing for years and years and years? And my suggested answer here is that this this kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say, but like the absence of rooftop prairie in these discussions reflects idealized and also very classist understandings of urban spaces in Egypt. In a sense, animals should not exist in the city, definitely not as food. They exist as pets, and pets are basically like as extensions of families that are tamed, that are domesticated, that are disciplined. Whereas animals for food should be reared elsewhere in farms, and like, yes, in farms or basically in rural areas. So in this sense, also like to use Mary Douglas' uh, formula, like how she puts it is basically that animals here are are regarded as dirt or as matter out of place, and the place here is the city. So animals should not exist as food in the city, And I think here rooftops are fertile margin spaces that help us complicate this by showing how animals do exist in the city as food and as as offering a very important alternative to mass produced food production.
3: Absolutely. And that's what your piece does so beautifully. Um, And obviously, Noah, this piece, I imagine, has been the culmination of, of a lot of work. But I'm also curious what's next for you. What are you working on now or what are you planning to work on next? And where do you think this research will take you?
4: Yes, it is. It has been yeah, the culmination of, I think, continuing work, because in my PhD, I'm also focusing on home rearing practices and human animal relations of food in Egypt. But because of how deteriorating and dwindling rooftop rearing is uh, in the city now, I am moving to rural Egypt. So basically, I'm just trying to explore how do home rearing practices unfold in rural Egypt. And it's interesting and it's also another challenge because in the city, the narrative of, of rooftop rearing is a very heroic, extraordinary narrative of families feeding the families, uh, of families feeding themselves. Mm. But in rural Egypt, it's just a very ordinary, everyday narrative of yes, we all rear animals at home. So for me, the challenge is: okay, then what does rural Egypt tell us about home rearing practices? And I think one of the things that I'm also trying to focus a bit more on is this concept of terbea and um, focusing on the very intimacy and the dynamics of this relationship between women and the animals they're rare, but also potentially children and the animals. and how, And what do children learn from this proximity to animals who later become food?
3: Well, that all sounds so fascinating and I can't wait to read more. Noah, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, It's been a pleasure talking to you.
4: Thank you, Lisa. I really enjoyed it and thank you for the wonderful questions. And yeah, I'm looking forward to sharing more as well. And our
3: listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. And join us in the coming weeks this summer season as we talk with more authors from our newest issue, Gastronomica 22.2.
1: The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.